You may be seated. We'll be looking today at the entire chapter of Daniel chapter 5, and I want to read that for us. It's a lengthy passage, so I think it's best for you to be seated, although in our hearts we honor God's Word. But I want us to be able to give our full attention to the narrative that we have in Daniel chapter 5, and our primary focus, however, will be on verses 18 through 30. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 5 and read along as I read out loud. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing shows me its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that the light of understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me, to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your reward to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. 
O King, the Most High God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. And whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourselves against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And then from his presence the hand was sent, and his writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Let's pray. Our Father, this passage reminds us that you're serious about sin. You will deal with those who violate your covenant, and you will execute your right judgment upon them. And this text also reminds us that you show mercy to some covenant breakers, and another has taken the curse of breaking the covenant on their behalf. And for that, they are free from the penalty forever. So encourage us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The topic of justice or the theme of justice is often depicted in numerous statues and figurines on public buildings, courthouses, at the Supreme Court by a female uh, figure that often is blindfolded, uh, showing that justice should not be influenced by things other than the evidence and the law. And also, this figurine oftentimes has in her right hand a sword that is double-edged that shows the power of reason and justice. And for our purposes today, the most interesting, at least in my judgment, is in this figurine's left hand, often it's depicted, that she is holding a set of measuring scales. And there the idea is that uh, the judge is to be impartial and simply judge the case based on the weight of the evidence. Now we see in our text today 
very much a courtroom scene in Daniel chapter 5, believe it or not. And we see in chapter 5 today that there are a set of scales, but it's not some figurine, it's not even a human court, but it's God's scales. Where an individual's life and his work, the evidence of his life was weighed and found wanting. And this is depicted in this, in, this mysterious inscription that is written by this hand that appears in the fingers of a human hand that appear and write this inscription on the wall. If we stand before God on our own record, that record being the evidence that will either vindicate us or find us guilty of being a covenant breaker, if we stand before God and the evidence of our life is put in the scales of God's justice, we will be found lacking and wanting just like Belshazzar. And so what I want us to do today is to think about this question as we work through this entire chapter. Why was Belshazzar judged? And why are some not judged? In other words, why did Belshazzar suffer the penalty of the divine sanctions that were pronounced upon him in that inscription on the wall? And yet, you and I deserve that exact same punishment But why is it that some covenant breakers are spared the judgment? And I want us to think about this passage today in perhaps a different way than you've thought about it beforehand. And that is the context of God's covenant lawsuit against covenant breakers. And so we'll look at a covenant lawsuit defined. You'll see this on page I think page 5 of your sermon outline, the three points there. Covenant lawsuit defined. The covenant lawsuit against Belshazzar. And then thirdly, a covenant lawsuit and the cross. You should have a hint where this is going because we have made much about Jesus already in this service because I think this text makes much about Jesus for you and me today. And I want to show you how that is so. And we're going to end, even though this is a courtroom scene with a really severe verdict, we're going to end with a powerful note of encouragement and assurance for God's people with regards to this covenant lawsuit where we deserve the full wrath and fury of the judge, but we don't receive it. And why is that that so? And so when, when someone, you know, commits a crime in, in our day, they're often uh, charged with that crime, and there's a prosecutor who develops the charge, and they're brought before the, um, in a courtroom scene, before the judge, and of course, uh, that, that penalty or that, that charge is, is prosecuted, 
And so there's a prosecutor who brings the charge against that guilty person. There's evidence that is presented to show the guilt. And, of course, in our context, there's a defense that is made, and then there's a judgment that is rendered, and then if he's found guilty or the person's found guilty, there's a sentence that is carried out. And I want to suggest to you that that Daniel chapter 5 is very much in in the form of of a courtroom scene like that, with the exception of there's not a defense given by Belshazzar in this particular case. But think about this. When someone commits a notorious crime, it's often said that this accused person is going to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law or that, that the law is going to be brought to bear upon them in the fullest extent. Now, much of what we've talked about thus far with regards to God's character towards covenant breakers is that he's patient. Think about what we've talked about in Genesis or uh, Daniel chapter 2 all the way through chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar was, was so prideful, unrepentant, unwilling to humble himself, and God was patient with him, called him to repentance through Daniel, and finally God humbled him, and to our great delight, Nebuchadnezzar repented and was restored. That was our topic last week. And so the, the, the principle is that God is patient to give sinners time to repent But God does not always exercise self-restraint with regards to bringing judgment, sometimes immediately, though temporally, upon covenant breakers. And we have a a case of that uh, today with with Belshazzar. That is to say that in, in an immediate sense and also in an ultimate sense, the full force of God's justice and law will come to bear upon those who are guilty of violating his covenant, that is, who continue in their rebellion against God. And Belshazzar, in verse 30, suffered the full wrath and fury of God's divine sanction as a guilty covenant breaker. And I want to show us how that is so. And so I want us to look at the big picture, chapter 5. The big picture is this, this, this principle of God's covenant lawsuit against those who violate his covenant for the purpose of God's justice being satisfied. And the term covenant lawsuit might be unfamiliar to you, but it it refers um, to God serving as both the prosecutor and the judge to bring a case against those who break his covenant to justify then the sentence of judgment that is upon him. And for example, if you look in Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, that's a classic example of God's covenant lawsuit against apostate or rebellious Israel. Here, Amos is is caught up into the the courtroom of God, and he kind of overhears what is going on there, and and he hears God being the prosecutor, bringing the charge against Uh, rebellious Israel. God is also the judge. He pronounces the divine sanction upon them, and then they suffer the verdict of the Assyrian aggression. So as we look at Amos chapter 3 and verse 1, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. Here it is, the Lord speaking a word against the nation of Israel. He's bringing a charge against them. He is mounting up evidence against them for their covenant breaking. O people of Israel, against the whole family that I 
that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. God is bringing that charge against them. We see similarly in Micah 6, 1 through 8, Hosea 4, verse 1, and also Hosea 12, verse 2, another example of this covenant lawsuit. In Hosea 4, 1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of the Lord. He has a controversy with the inhabitants of this land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. And what Hosea is telling us is that God has a controversy. God is bringing a lawsuit against the Israelites living in that land because, as we know from Hosea, their spiritual idolatry. And we can, we can replace the word controversy in Hosea 4 with lawsuit. In Hosea 12, too, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to the ways he will repay him according to his deeds. So the Scriptures themselves speak of God playing the role of prosecutor and judge in bringing legal action, a a lawsuit against the nation of Israel because of violating the terms of the covenant that he established with them. But I want to suggest something to you that is even a bigger picture, that as we simply look at the relationship between the historical books in the Bible, the Joshua and Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, those types of books, in comparison to the prophetical books, the Isaiahs, the Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, for example, we see that the way these books are organized and their content also point to this covenant lawsuit. So let me explain this. As, as we look at the historical books, take them as the evidence, the historical background and evidence that shows the guilt of Israel in abandoning God and violating his covenant. And then as we look at the prophetical books, we see the prophets on behalf of God prosecuting that case against Israel in light of the evidence. And what's interesting about the prophetical books is that each prophetical book preaches and teaches judgment, but also repentance. And so there is not only this this terror of judgment in the prophetical books, but there's also this hope of repentance if the people turn around. I mean, Daniel 5 is an example. It's, it's called, in the English Bible, it's a prophetical book. In the Hebrew Bible, it's, a, it's part of the wisdom book. But nonetheless, why are we even talking about Daniel being in Babylon? It's because of judgment being brought to bear upon Israel for their rebellion. And the penalty was, you will go into exile for 70 years. And so Daniel is a book that is out is in the context of judgment being suffered by God's people and the evidence of Israel's rebellion against God is ever so clear. Just read the book of Joshua or the book of Judges or Samuel or Kings and you'll clearly see time and time again how Israel disobeyed God. And God said, if you keep disobeying me, if you keep violating my covenant, I will bring judgment upon you. And he did in a temporal sense. And that's why we're studying the book of Daniel with Daniel and his companions in Babylon. And so we, um, I just want to make a few notes as, as we get to the actual meat of the covenant lawsuit that we find here, primarily um, in verses 18 through 30. 
But I do want to say just a few general things about Daniel chapter 5. First of all, Daniel chapter 5 begins at the very end of the Babylonian Empire. And so from, from Nebuchadnezzar and the greatness of his reign in chapters 2 through 4, we kind of fast forward to the very end of that empire. Number two, the term father that we find in verse 2 and in several other places in Daniel chapter 5 does not refer to Nebuchadnezzar being Belshazzar's biological father or ancestor. It's, a, it's an Aramaic term that can be interpreted predecessor. So it's just simply acknowledging that Nebuchadnezzar ruled before Belshazzar. And even to complicate things more, and thirdly, Belshazzar in verse 1 is called king, but he really wasn't the, the rightful king, the successor to the throne. His father, Nabonidus, was the king. And because some sources say Nabonidus suffered from illness and so he couldn't live in Babylon but lived in the city, uh, Tama, that he appointed his son, Belshazzar, as a sort of subordinate co-regent to reign for him in Babylon. And so just for you to know that, that there's oftentimes uh, controversy about chapter 5 of Daniel because of some of these things. But when Daniel chapter 1 says Belshazzar was king, we can take it that he was. He was ruling in place of his father, though his father was the, the prominent king. And also, another matter just to clear up, at the end, in verse 30, we find that Darius the Mede is credited for coming and, co- and conquering Babylon. And in actuality, Darius probably was an officer of Cyrus, who is the actual king of the Medes and the Persian. So there, those are just a few things that sometimes people have disagreements on that might be helpful for you. But I want to look specifically at this, this idea of Daniel chapter 5 being a covenant lawsuit. And I want to first say that, that a covenant lawsuit begins by noting the history. It gives a historical background. In other words, it gives the evidence for the guilt of the person. And let's look then at the evidence that was given against Belshazzar. We've already read verses 1 through 17, so I'm not really going to say much more about that, but you have the context of our starting in verse 18 with the actual evidence that is given. And the first thing I want to say is that in verse 18, we learn that Belshazzar failed to learn from the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Did you know that Nebuchadnezzar had a testimony? What do testimonies do? They're very important, aren't they? It's an opportunity for someone to profess what God has done in their life. This is how I was before I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. This is how I came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior that I, he brought me to the place of repenting of my sins. I trusted in him, his death on the cross, and those aspects of the gospel message. And then this is the difference that Jesus has made in my life. And so what Daniel does in verses 18 through 22 is that he takes Belshazzar through Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He says Nebuchadnezzar was this prideful tyrant, and he refused to acknowledge God. He refused to be humbled, and then God humbled him. 
and Nebuchadnezzar uh, experienced the, the heavy hand of God's discipline and judgment upon him for a time. And then God restored, Nebuchadnezzar repented, God restored him to a position of greater influence. And so that's a testimony about how God worked in Nebuchadnezzar's life to bring him from being a prideful tyrant to being a humble servant of the Most High God, acknowledging the Most High God as the true God. And the amazing thing is, is that Belshazzar failed to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, Nebuchadnezzar's experience. In fact, in verse 22, we find that he did not learn. In, in, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, through, though, though he was prideful, humble, repented, and, and restored, the text says that Belshazzar knew all of this about Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 22. And the last king of Babylon, as we learn, refused to be humbled like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. And we find that this brought about the second aspect of the evidence against Belshazzar, that first, he failed to be humbled, he failed to learn from the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, and then secondly, his own hard heart. You know, verses uh, 1 through Five describe this pagan feast that, that took place. There, Belshazzar was sitting elevated in an elevated position on a table. He, he drank wine in front of everybody, just, just outright bravado, uh, prideful. All eyes were on him. Likely, he became under the influence of the wine a bit too much, and he ordered that all the gold, gold vessels that, that Nebuchadnezzar had ordered taken from the temple in Jerusalem that were that were for God's worship be brought out so that they can fill them with wine and all the revelers could drink from those sacred uh, vessels that were dedicated to the worship of the one true God. And so that was done, and they praised the, their pagan gods, and they mocked the one true God, and we see here a note of idolatry and blasphemy. And we look at verse 23, "...but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven." And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, your lords and your wives and your concubines, have drank uh, wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And we see here, that Belch- the evidence against Belshazzar is he failed to learn from his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, that God was serious about dealing with covenant breaking. He was hardened towards repenting. In his own personal life, he did everything he could to mock the one true God and to blaspheme him and to be an idolater. Now, you may be asking, wait a minute, Tim. The word covenant does not appear in Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar is not a member of the nation of Israel, so how could he be a covenant breaker? I would just simply take you to, the, to one verse in the passage that Carl read earlier today, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Here's the point. Belshazzar is a covenant breaker because he was born under the covenant of works 
the very covenant that, that was given to Adam in Genesis chapter 2, the very covenant that Adam violated in Genesis chapter 3, and because of that, now all mankind are born as sinners, are born incapable of fulfilling the covenant of works, and thus are by nature not only are objects of God's wrath, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, but also covenant breakers. So Belshazzar is a covenant breaker with regards to the fact that he stands before God guilty of violating his covenant that we see in Genesis 2 and also in Romans uh, chapter 5. And let me say this. You and I were born covenant breakers, incapable of fulfilling the covenant. So why did, ne- why did Belshazzar fail to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony? It's simply this, that he had not been given the spiritual ability to see his sin and to repent and to acknowledge the one true God. It's interesting that A.J. Mortier, a wonderful commentator, says this, the word of God which gives life to some brings death to others. And the determining factor in one coming to spiritual life and one not is simply the sovereign will of God, that he accomplishes his purposes. He accomplishes his purposes and is glorified in the salvation of the elect. He accomplishes his purposes and he's glorified in the damnation of the reprobate. Either way, God's purposes are fulfilled and God's glory is upheld. And so the first part of a covenant lawsuit is the historical background, the evidence that shows the guilt. And Belshazzar is shown to be guilty as a covenant breaker. But the second part are the divine sanctions. And this is where we get in verse 25 to that, that inscription, many, many tekel, you parson, you in the Aramaic is simply and. And so Daniel in, in verses 26 and 27 gives the meaning for this mysterious phrase that, that had such a, an effect on Belshazzar, even the fact that his knees knocked because of it. And he was alarmed because of it. And there the Aramaic word meaning just simply means numbered, that meaning that Belshazzar's days, the Babylonian kingdom's days, are numbered and will come to an end. Tekel refers to that scale, God's scale, that, that takes the evidence and, and weighs it. And Belshazzar's, the evidence against Belshazzar was weighed in the scales and he was found wanting, lacking. He didn't meet the standard. And then Parson is simply referring to, to, to the sentence of that divine sanction that is pronounced and carried out, the judgment, and that is that the kingdom will be divided, not that half will be given to the Medes and half will be given to the Persians, but it means that the kingdom will be destroyed and one will rise up in this united kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, according to what God said in, in uh, chapter 2 of Daniel with the great statue that Babylon would come to an end and another kingdom would replace it. We find here in Daniel 5, God simply doing what he said he would do. And the third element in, in a covenant lawsuit is this, judgment. The execution of the sentence. And here we find that in, in verse 29, oddly enough, where Daniel in, in verse 17 said to Belshazzar, Belshazzar, you can keep your reward. I do not want the clothing in purple. 
uh, expensive clothing. I, I really don't want the gold chain, nor do I want to be third in line. I don't want to be third in line after your father, yourself, and then there's Daniel. I don't want that. I don't have any interest in that. All I have interest in is God and his truth, and I'm going to tell you the truth of God. But here in verse 29... Belshazzar bestows this upon him, and Daniel receives it. Daniel's already made his case, and he's not really interested in it. So, But nonetheless, he receives it. And then verse 30, immediately that night, that very night, Darius came and destroyed uh, the kingdom, and Belshazzar died. You know, Nebuchadnezzar took the difficult path of humility, but Belshazzar learned a really hard lesson <laughs> that God will punish covenant breakers and execute his judgment upon them. And so, that's how I want us to look at Daniel chapter 5. And you may be asking today, okay, that's a covenant lawsuit. What does that really have to do with you and me today? And I want to say this uh, to you and me, that this whole aspect of a covenant lawsuit has everything to do with our hope of being in heaven one day. And I want us to turn to this third point that you'll find in your sermon outline. It's the covenant lawsuit and the cross. I want us to be reminded that by nature we're covenant breakers. And if God left us in that state, our destiny would be that of Belshazzar. Do you believe that? But thankfully, God has not left us in that estate. That something has happened that spares us from the divine sanction that we rightly deserve. And the sentence of death, that should be exercised upon us. And what has happened The covenant lawsuit has gone forth. God's justice must be served. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 15. And just because of the length of this passage and the the hour of the day, cannot spend a whole lot of time here, but I simply want to draw a connection with a couple of scriptures, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. This is the Old Testament passage, Genesis 15. I want us to look at verse 17. (laughs) And this is... This is about as mysterious as the handwriting on the wall. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant uh, with Abraham. And let me just quickly give you the background here. This is, Genesis chapter 15 is God confirming his covenant with Abraham. The covenant's given in Genesis chapter 12. And what God is doing here to Abraham, after in verse uh, 6 of Genesis 15, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Abraham came to trust God that he would fulfill his covenant that he had made, a son and a future and, and a people and all of those things that we read in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. But here in Genesis 15, God has come to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I mean business. I am going to fulfill this covenant with you. And so what, a- what God told Abraham to do in the latter parts of, of Genesis 15 and verse 17 is to take some animals, cut them in half, and lay them side by side. And then this smoking fire pot and this cauldron pass through those animal pieces. And what God was saying is this. 
He was using the the form of covenant making of Abraham's day to show Abraham that he would fulfill the covenant, that Abraham would be blessed. Now there's a problem. Because Abraham was born, what? A covenant breaker. And he didn't have the ability to keep God's covenant. And so something had to happen that would keep God's covenant without demanding a covenant breaker try to keep God's covenant. And so what happened is that God, that smoking fire pot and cauldron is called a theopony. It, is a, it represents the presence of God that God himself passed through those animal pieces. And this is what God was saying to Abraham. Abraham, if I fail to fulfill the covenant with you, may I be slaughtered like these animals. God bound himself to keep the covenant that he made with Abraham. <laughs> and he's telling Abraham, Abraham, my promises will be yours. I have taken this self-maledictory oath, this oath curse upon myself. And now I want us to go to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And I want to commend this to you today. That what we see in Genesis 15, 17 about about God taking upon Himself the curse of violating the covenant was fulfilled on the cross of Jesus Christ. The perfect covenant keeper took the curse of breaking the covenant by wretched covenant breakers like you and me. He satisfied the covenant both in His living perfectly in it and His taking the curse for violating it on our behalf. And this is why that there are those who are covenant breakers naturally but are spared the curse of violating the covenant because the sentence has been carried out on Jesus in our place. And brothers and sisters, I have not the ability to speak more passionately to commend this to your heart today for your assurance that you're not going to be like Belshazzar. Jesus became Belshazzar in our place so that we would be restored and have a hope and a future and a home in heaven. The cross of Christ frees us from that divine sanction of the covenant lawsuit and the sentence of judgment 
that is right because of the evidence. And I want to just end with this. God in his mighty, godly, holy scales, (laughs) when he weighs you and me in the balance, we're not found wanting. You know why? Because what is put in the balance, what is put in the balance on our behalf, in our account, is the perfect record of Jesus Christ. Amen? Father, I pray that you would give us a real sense of urgency to seek you in once again asking for forgiveness And there may be those here today that are yet outside the kingdom of God that are living like Belshazzar. And, oh, Father, would you impress upon them the need to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's testimony and my testimony and maybe their parents' testimony and maybe other testimonies that that show that covenant breakers can be so wonderfully and beautifully changed and redeemed that they live free, spared from that judgment and have a life and a hope and a future. And for most of us here today, Father, I pray simply that you would assure our hearts of the perfect covenant keeper who took the curse of covenant breaking for us that we might live free in him forever. Amen.